Hey, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse family. I wanted to remind you before the show starts that if you are considering travel nursing, you can go to their website today at trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse, fill out a profile and start seeing opportunities right now all across the country. You can see what they pay. You can see the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile today. You guys know how much I love nursing schools. Well, we have another one that wants us to tell you about their MSN and DNP family nurse practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. And right now, they are offering tons of scholarship opportunities starting at $10,000 for both of these programs. You know, I'm in the midst of getting my MSN. And let me tell you, I wish I would have known about these scholarships when I first enrolled. Visit them at smumsn.com and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's smumsn.com. everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and welcome back to another week of talking true crime and other stories, and of course, nursing and healthcare. And I have Dan Weberg from Trusted Health back on this show today. Hey, Dan. Hey. How are you doing? I'm doing well in sunny California, and uh, yeah, excited to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really nice to have you. Uh, we of course, appreciate Trusted Health so much for sponsoring our podcast and being really just partnering with us and friends of, of the podcast for the past several years. We really appreciate you guys helping us to kind of keep everything going here. Always good to have you. Love sponsoring it. Love the content and excited to be a fly on the wall in the conversation again. I think this is a really cool episode that we have planned. The bad doctor story. Sorry, guys. I Every week I have to apologize. I keep doing the bad doctor stories, but they're interesting, aren't they? They're very <laughs> so, interesting. <laughs> I mean, they just are. So this one is, it's definitely, it's a fascinating story, but it is extremely sad how someone could just kind of lose their way and cause so much destruction. And it's not your typical case where the person actually meant to do harm. It was just a, a series of very bad choices and unfortunate circumstances. So we'll we'll get into that. And then the the good doctor story I'm really excited about because you guys know I love stories from like a hundred years ago or more because, you know, we kind of can go so far back that there's literally no one alive today that's going to be listening going, hey, that was my uncle or, you know, so I love stories like that. And it's very creepy. It's kind of a creepy story. But also we get to highlight the accomplishments of a doctor who really after she died, her name was sort of smeared and it was very unfair the way she was treated and her reputation was smeared. And, and so I uh, want to give an opportunity to just sort of say some some good things about her and her accomplishments. So before we get started, I wanted to just say I actually am doing travel nursing. I've said this before. I started this about a month ago. And so with Trusted Health, which would, it would be terrible if all of a sudden I was just like, you know, I decided to go with a different travel. <laughs> I would never do that. I would never do that. But I'd it's, have to um, boycott your show then. <laughs> I would just I'd be like, uh, Dan, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, no, <laughs> I I had to see for myself what it's like. And it, it actually, it's so much fun. And I, my husband and I literally the other day were looking at each other and really, we were honestly, we were looking at how much money I was making. And he was like, why, why have you waited to do that? I, I said, I don't know. I'm not sure. I just, it's a scary thing. It's a scary thought to stop, you know, the stability of 
the hospital you work, most nurses are afraid to float to a different floor, much less just jump into working as a nurse at a completely different hospital. So, you know. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not easy. And I think there's a level of glamour that kind of precedes people jumping into travel. And it's not all that glamorous, I don't I don't think, just <laughs> seeing the stories. But it's an awesome opportunity to just change your perspective and get experience that you wouldn't get if you stayed at the same hospital forever. Mm-hmm. You know, make a little money as well. And also, it just starts to round out your independence and autonomy as a nurse, I think, which is a really cool thing to do. Because now, you know, after this assignment and a couple others, you're going to say, I can work anywhere. And like yes. that, that's empowering. That's kind of a cool, cool thing to do. It is. And for you guys that are listening and are kind of considering it, think about this. What I did is I am a chicken. I don't like to spend the night away by myself. I've literally never spent the night in a hotel room by myself before. So I was afraid of that. I was literally afraid of like, I don't know if I can do it just for that reason alone. And so I found a hospital that's just an hour and a half from my house. And I just drive there every day. And every now and then my husband will go with me and we will get a hotel if I feel like I just need a break from the drive. It's wonderful. It's such a change of pace. I live very close to the time zone border. So when I leave my house in the morning, it's like six o'clock and then I cross the time zone and it becomes five. So I literally leave my house at the same time. I feel like it's like the best way for me to just get my feet wet and, and figure out whether I like it or not. You guys, it's really wonderful. I'm telling you, I don't think I've ever talked to a travel nurse, whether it's at the hospital where I've worked at talking to travel nurses or the travel nurses that I've you know met online or through Trusted. I've never met one that's regretted doing it ever. They love it. It's a wonderful experience. You get to meet new people. They're generally happy to see you come in because you're helping out, you know, in a difficult situation. So if you're interested, go to trustedhealth.com. Be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they know that we sent you there and fill out a profile. Yeah, I mean, it's free to fill out a profile. It's easy. You know, we don't hound you uh, like other other organizations might around this. And, and you can really discover if it's for you. Look at the pay packages are transparent. You can talk with other nurses on our community sites. And we have nurse advocates. When you sign up for Trusted, you're not getting a recruiter. You're getting a nurse uh, that has either traveled or has a lot of experience being a nurse to be your point of contact as you work through your contract and and sign. And you can have that peer-to-peer conversation and think that's that's game-changing. And if you're you know worried about jumping into travel, like why not jump in with fellow nurses helping you along the way? Head over to our website and check it out. It definitely is a different experience if you've heard from others that haven't worked with us before. So Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about it is for a year before I ever actually pulled the trigger to do it, I was able to see jobs and what they pay. It lists everything out there. It's so transparent. You can see the stipend. You can see the hourly rate, the overtime pay. Everything is right there in all the different cities. So I looked at that for a long time and finally decided, okay, I'm going to do this. So it's really neat. If you're interested and you're not sure, just go ahead and fill out a profile and start looking at that stuff because it, it will help you make the decision. You can just see in what it pays and kind of comparing it to what you're making now. And, you know, and it's not always about money. Sometimes it's just about the experience and wanting to get out there and see new things and go to different places. It's, it's fun. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if you want to superpower yourself as a nurse, as a clinician, you know, travel for a few years and work at every major academic medical center there is and just imagine the experience you're going to get. I mean, you're going to be one of the best nurses in the country and you can take that back and settle down wherever you want or catalyze your career into something different. I mean, think of it as a way to just change your entire professional life and be that superpower 
because other people that stay at the same place aren't going to get the same kind of experiences. So I like looking at it like that. And you can do it for a month. You can do it for 10 years. You could do it for 40 years. You know, you can really choose it, that flexibility. We have thousands of open roles right now. And especially if you're an OR nurse, ORs are going off the chain right now. So uh, I saw we, that. <laughs> if yeah. we need uh, OR labor and delivery are coming back really strong. PEDS, ER, ICU are still hot. So, and we even have jobs like on movie sets where you can be the COVID kind of compliance person on movie sets as a nurse. So, you know, it's not always just in hospitals. There's clinic jobs, there's vaccination roles, there's all kinds of stuff, school, nursing, all kinds of different things that you can explore. We even have a job that we saw the other day. It was you could be a nurse on a container ship that goes between Portland, Southern California, and Hawaii. And it was like a six-month gig and you're the nurse on a ship with a physician and you just go from port to port for six months. So... Anyway, that's, lots of cool stuff cool. as a nurse. That's really cool. Well, you guys go to trustedhealth.com and put forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile and see what we're talking about. So our bad doctor story for this week, I, I told you guys it was going to be interesting. It is. It's This is the story of Dr. Morris Levy. He was a, a pathologist for the Veterans Administration, and he lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and stayed in the Ozarks for most of his life. He was 54 years old and graduated from the University of Chicago in biological sciences from the Pritzker School of Medicine in 1992. So he did a five-year residency in pathology at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and then a one-year fellowship in hematopathology. So that's a very impressive list of educational mm-hmm. <laughs> experiences there. I mean, to go to the School of Medicine there in San Francisco and then do that one-year fellowship. I was just talking to Nurse Jessica's husband, who's an OBGYN, a couple of weeks ago for an episode. And he was talking about how, you know, you, once you graduate from medical school, you're a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. But unless you have this stuff behind you, you really shouldn't be practicing medicine. Yeah. So he actually didn't hold a medical license until 1997. And there he got his license in Mississippi, the state of Mississippi. So in 2005, he was hired by the Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville, Arkansas in 2014. So we're skipping ahead a little bit. I always feel like when we do that, we're just like, wait, did we just miss a whole bunch of interesting stuff? 20 years later, (laughs) fast forward. (laughs) One thing led to another. (laughs) So... I'm sure a lot of interesting things happen. It's just not documented. And you know, if it didn't, if it wasn't documented, it didn't happen. He performed a biopsy, though, of an unnamed veteran who had a tumor. And after the biopsy came to the conclusion that it was a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, even though there was another pathologist who really urged him to carry out more tests to confirm a diagnosis. So he actually went as far as to lie on paper to say that the other pathologist agreed with him. That's, it's really shocking. I'm always shocked when people do things like this because I said this before, but if I accidentally leave two Tylenol in my pocket and I get home and I see that I walked home with something from the, I mean, I don't care if it's a a flush or something and it's in my pocket. I'm just sure that the FBI is going to break down my door. (laughs) Just like it scares me to death. It's so hard for me to fathom people making decisions like this. Like, how could you literally put like lie on there and say this on these official documents. I don't understand it. And for like such a big diagnosis too. I mean, you're talking about cancer. That seems like one of those things where that should trigger some sort of ethical bone in your body to be like, I don't think I should mess with this. And I was thinking about this too. I was like, 
what are like the stages of like ethical slip that lead to something like this? And, and I was thinking about like how many times I'm in a hurry on a stable patient, I'm right, 16 respirations and like you don't really <laughs> count kind of thing. Like that that's like the low level, like it's not going to impact people's outcomes for the most part, mm-hmm. all the way up to this thing. And I'm like, how many times do we do that in our day where we're just like, oh yeah, yeah, I checked it. It's fine. But this seems like such a big, big deal that there's some sort of, there's some sort of issue like ethically that just wasn't triggering in him. Yeah. So I'm actually working on right now a, I guess a book, it's a talk that I may turn into a book, but it's about being the perfectly good nurse and it's about being perfect. I really want to try to emphasize the importance of, of trying to be perfect in our job, of striving for perfection and like when you think of like, you know, documenting respirations, you can't always be in your patient's room every hour in a ICU. You're required, you know, and you have two or sometimes three when you're not supposed to, but sometimes three patients and you can't be standing over them, watching them for a full minute. But should you try to, yeah, if you're standing there and you have the time, count the respirations. If you can't, it's almost like you have to strive for perfection always, always try to be perfect because you do have people's lives in your hands, but you got to be able to forgive yourself when you fall short because you're going to fall short because that's just the system we live in. We're human beings. We we live in an imperfect world. I do think that it's important for us to try to strive for it, you know, always try to do our absolute very best because I do think that when we start cutting corners, you have to, and you realize that very quickly out of nursing school, you get jump out of NCLEX world, the perfect world into the real world. And that world doesn't exist. You can't be a nurse there because it's not there. You're living in an imperfect world where you have too many patients to take care of. And so you have to start shaving off corners of things. You have to start deciding, well, what am I going to do in this situation where I have all of these things to do and there's no, there's no possible way to do them all? Right. And so where do you shave off the corners? Yeah. And I think that's kind of the big system issue within healthcare in general is like all this work has to be done. There's a lot of tasks that are not evidence-based that we're forced to do, whether it's documentation related or checks or whatever, you know, tasks we have to do. And you're never taught like what actually matters versus what doesn't. And, or we don't help coach nurses through that a lot. We just kind of say, figure it out and Mm -hmm. you choose. And I think there's better ways to think about it. I mean, when I started as a new grad at the ER, my preceptor basically said, like, you are MacGyver. You'll never have enough staff. You'll never have enough equipment. You'll never have enough time. And you need to think like MacGyver about when use what's around you to provide the best patient care and make sure that patient gets the essential things that they need. And I always kind of kept that mindset. So my spirit animal now is MacGyver. And I think that's like Mm. the spirit animal of all of nursing. Like you never have the right stuff. And so how do you put together the right things and have that ethical bone that MacGyver had always doing the right thing, you know? And like, how do you take that and just innovate every minute of your shift to make sure that you're doing the right thing for your patient? Yeah, because if you don't do that, if you don't maintain that focus, then I do believe that you are susceptible to end up like Dr. Levy, where he obviously started shaving off the corners in the wrong places. He started getting comfortable with doing things like this. He he did not, I don't think that he would have just one day woke up and decided, I'm just going to take a shortcut and diagnose this without doing all the steps I need to. I'm sure it started with, I'm going to skip this, you know, consistently. And he picked the wrong, most important things that you should, you know, and, and in nursing, there are certain things that you absolutely should not skip. You know, they're just, and, and that's one of the things that I want to talk about in, in developing this, this talk or the the book or whatever I'm working on. And, and that is like, there are certain things that have to do with patient safety 
and you're protecting your license that you should never, ever skip. And he missed that. If you have those checks in place for yourself and you know, I will never program a pump for a presser without double checking that, without stopping and thinking and double checking all six rights and doing everything. I will never do that. I can't make myself do it because I've just established that for myself. I have these things that I would never do. If Dr. Levy, I feel like if he had had that, whatever it is that clearly led him to doing this in place, this maybe, you know, unfortunate thing would not have happened. But it's sad enough, he actually misdiagnosed this patient with cancer that he did not have. And the patient ended up dying not long after, because in further investigation, they concluded that that particular patient died of small cell carcinoma, for which the veteran received no treatment that could have actually prolonged his life. I mean, that that's horrifying. I Get out of the profession at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he asked that he had the whole substance abuse thing behind him, right? And and that yeah. obviously was probably playing into this and to the point yeah. where he was able to like think and use his medical and, and biology knowledge to drink something that got him drunk but was untraceable. I mean, you know, there's a we fast forwarded, you know, 10 years in the story, but like that 10 years probably is the most impactful yeah. personally to the physician that like led, you know, built up and led to this with substance abuse, ethical slip, whatever else was going on. Yeah, it's, it's sad. And then the ultimate, you know, bad outcome happens and a patient is misdiagnosed and dies. Yeah. So in 2015, they were starting to suspect that he was possibly intoxicated while working and he was given a mandatory test. It did reveal that he had a blood alcohol level of 0.396. That's very, very, I can't, I can't even imagine. I would be dead probably, honestly. I would not What's be the highest you've seen in practice? Oh. We used to take bets in the ER on this. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know because I, not working in the ER, I don't really see that a whole lot. So I can't even remember. So the know. highest I've ever seen was 0.418 and it was on a 120 pound female patient that was probably 29 <laughs> Dang! And she was walking in and out of the ER and mad at us. Tr- tried to sign out AMA because she was mad that we weren't letting her drink. But she would take down two handles of vodka in the morning every day. Ooh, so that's sad. That's yeah. really really sad. Yeah. So point okay. three nine. I mean that that's a that's it's massive. I mean that's you mm-hmm. know forty percent. It's crazy. Grief. He's working and and he's got people's lives in his hands. It's unbelievable. So he was required to attend a three month patient alcohol rehab program, uh, inpatient alcohol rehab program that he he had to do that and he completed it. And then after the program, he returned to work. I am 100% for rehabilitation. I believe in rehabilitation. And I, I came under a little bit of scrutiny a few weeks ago because I did a story about a woman who went through some difficult times and had some issues with substance abuse. And then she uh, was able to finally complete nursing school and she's a nurse now. And most people, most of the things that I heard back from that were, were all positive and everybody was like, wow, what an amazing story. I love it. But I, of course, you're always going to hear the naysayers and the people are so negative. And they were just like, no one should be. I believe in rehabilitation. I don't know that a three-month stint in a rehab in this situation would, I don't know that I would be comfortable, you know, that that, that would be enough to, to put him back on track. But that's that's what they did. 
Yeah, I don't know. In this story, it seems like there's there was a lot of red flags with this person, but I, I agree with you in the in the rehab piece. I mean, we just did a training with some leaders of the boards of nursing, and they said people can change, and mm-hmm. it's about patterns and impact. And because something, and we see this sometimes too with with nurses, like they'll have a DUI from college, and like that follows them around for a while. Sometimes it hits their license if, if they were licensed at the time. And, you know, we, we try and really give a fair assessment and, and say, Hey, if you have great references, you've worked shifts and assignments, other places, and you have a pattern of being a rock star nurse, there's no reason we wouldn't work with you. But if we also see patterns and red flags of other things that come up or, you know, shady behavior around whatever it is, then those are things that we consider. But I, I think you can't just take one moment in someone's life and, you know, stop, thinking they could be a nurse or, or whatever. But like in this story, there's definitely patterns of things. Like I mean, he's like diverting like shipments to his house to get this chemical to drink. And uh, anyway, it, this th- there's a lot of red flags here, I think. Yes, he figured out a way, like you said, using his skills and, and education, he found a way around it by taking a drug 2M2B, whatever that is, it stimulates intox- intoxication, but doesn't show up on tests. I mean, th- to me, that's just... I don't know. It's just hard for me to understand that. But but then again, you know, different. everybody's different. And so he must have clearly needed to be in that mindset for some reason. It wasn't about the alcohol if he's just taking a drug to get him into that state or I don't know. Very strange. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. So, Brayden, you actually reached out to me about CBD Stack because they sponsored a podcast a couple of months ago. And then I was so happy when you reached out to let me know that you really liked the product. So tell everybody your experience with it. So I get chronic headaches. If you saw my life, like what I'm doing, I just had a kid. I'm starting school. I'm moving into a house. I, I just have so much on my plate. So after getting this CBD oil, I tried it. I put it on and within 10 minutes of my headache, it started fading away. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. It, it was. So I love CBD stat. They have an excellent product. I use the 5,000 milligrams. It's a lifesaver. Their product is really pure, very strong. And that's probably the reason why it works so well. Yeah. They have a, a really nice like 30% off yeah. discount. That's, that's amazing for all of our listeners. And the way that you get that discount is that you have to go to their website at cbdstat.care. So it's not .com or .org or .net, it's .care. So cbdstat.care, and then you put forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. So, and by doing that, then it sort of takes you to a special portal where you will get 30% off of whatever you order, which is really cool. It is. And it's 100% worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys, if you're interested in it, go to www.cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse and get your 30% off. We have a company, Echo. It's a technology company. They have come out with this like little device that you attach to your stethoscope and it enhances the sound. It's the coolest thing. I was curious about it. So I, I reached out to them. They came back and they were like, hey, let us send you a stethoscope. See what you think. They actually have partnered with Littman and they literally took the cardiology floor and they've put the Echo technology that enhances the sound. So they sent this to me. 
And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I want to try this. And I took it to work and I brought it into the break room and was opening it up. And everybody was like, what is that? I'm like, it's a new stethoscope. I was so excited about it. So I put it on and I immediately go up to a nurse and I'm like listening. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like the best stethoscope I have ever used in my life. It was just so crystal clear. I could not believe the quality of like the heart sounds, the lung sounds, the bowel sounds. I was just listening to everything. And then what was funny is I looked down and there's this little button on it. I'm like, what does this thing do? I pushed the button and lo and behold, like this little light comes on. It was unbelievable. You can hear every sound that the inside of a human body could possibly make. It's, I, it's just unbelievable. So they decided to sponsor our podcast, probably because I was just like doing backflips, like going, I love this so much. I will literally, I, I have no problem shouting from the rooftops. You need to get one of these stethoscopes. If you want to know what a heart is supposed to sound like, what lungs are supposed to sound like, what bowel sounds are supposed to sound like, you need this technology. It's unbelievable. It's Echo. And the name of the actual stethoscope with the core technology is the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. It's the actual stethoscope that they sent me, and it does feature up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation. It can use Bluetooth. It connects to Echo's free app and software that allows you to visualize, record, share, live stream, and analyze heart, lung, and other body sounds. It's crazy. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. You can go to Echo Health, and it's E-K-O-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com, echohealth.com, and use the code G-N-B-N, like good nurse, bad nurse, of course, for $20 off of your purchase, echohealth.com. In 2017, Robert Thomas Chick got misdiagnosed by Dr. Levy, and even though all the signs pointed to a different condition. He died five months later of lung cancer that he didn't know he had, and it could have been treated. So just a few months later, the VA gave Dr. Levy a bonus for a stellar performance. And then not long after that, Kelly Copeland, a retired Air Force Master Sergeant, was given antibiotics for an earache after a biopsy. Levy read came back negative. 13 months later, Kelly Copeland's neck and throat cancer was discovered at stage four. Wow. Yeah, well, Kelly Copeland was able to have life-saving treatment, but it couldn't be celebrated uh, too much since it was so invasive that Copeland couldn't swallow food because of all the damage done. Yes, a life was saved, but it was still impacted greatly because of this whole situation. In 2018, Dr. Levy was arrested for driving under the influence. It seems like that's what gets a lot of these people, you know? Yeah. They get away with so much, and then it's just getting behind the wheel and just being careless and driving a little over the speed limit and getting pulled over. And then police officers like, mm, you know, what's going on? Something's, something's off. And then they get caught and all the stuff comes out. Yeah. Like that seems like every storyline of, you know, the show cops, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like we pulled this person over for speeding and then we found 16 warrants and 20 pounds of drugs. And it, and it was all because of speeding. Like how many times did Dr. Levy show up drunk to the job that people didn't notice what are, you look back like what are all the things that you saw that are that may have been weird one-off behaviors that now like the story is connected and you're like oh man i should have recognized that well after he was arrested he was fired and then they did an 18-month investigation they went back 12 years and what was discovered was that nearly 10 percent of his diagnoses involved clinical errors which is more than 10 times more than the normal misdiagnoses most people are listening to this probably know by now how often it is for people to be misdiagnosed. It's very common. 
my husband and I talk about this sometimes. He goes, why do they call it practicing medicine? I'm like, because it, you, it's, it's a trial and error. Yeah, yeah, it is. You could have five cardiologists read an EKG and disagree on what it says. It's called practicing for a reason. So you're going to have misdiagnoses. That's going to happen. But his rate was astronomical because he was just, and, and, I, and I just wonder, I have to believe that you just don't have any regard for human life if you would continue to do this and put people's lives in danger. Just You just don't care, clearly, yeah. especially if you see this happening and you continue to do it. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. I had an ER doc friend that, you know, going back to the medicine practice thing and nursing's a practice too, they would have an awesome day if they got their diagnosis right 30% of the time. <laughs> so, and the ER is a little different, right? They're just trying to decide like, hey, you're going to die. You need to be admitted. Do you go home? Mm -hmm. But for the most part, they, yeah, they're like 30% is like an amazing number for a day of like correct diagnoses. So, and patients come in and, and they'll be so upset because the doctor that they saw last week or whatever um, told them they didn't have an infection. And then now they're in their sepsis or, you know, something this happens all the time. You know, you have to just learn to educate people politely. You know, obviously, you know, you want to try to help them to understand how that could happen, even with really good doctors, because they're, they're doing the best they can with what they have, with the information that they have. And it is a rule out type of a situation sometimes. That doesn't mean that one doctor is better than the other. Now, some doctors are better than others at identifying certain things and understanding the big picture. And honing in a lot faster and finding it. So, I mean, they're just people that are more talented than others in different areas, but yeah. it is what it is. But in this guy's case, you, there are no excuses because he clearly, if you have numbers like that, you don't need to be in the profession at all. There were, yeah. and um, he's like the final check for diagnoses too. That's, that's the thing. Right. It's like pathology is, it, it's much more of a science, I think, than maybe other pieces of, of medicine are because mm -hmm. you're looking at cell structures and types of cells and colors and you can do kind of those things. It seems like you should be a little bit more accurate than just throwing a dart at the wall there. And the fact that he was kind of ambivalent about it is super scary. It is scary. The investigation led to the discovery of over 3,000 known misdiagnosed cases over the time of 12 years, 15 possible involuntary cases of manslaughter and mail fraud which actually was for having the drugs that he used to get intoxicated on the job shipped to his home from a company in Virginia in June of 2020. So this is a relatively recent case, you know, that that's happened. The former pathologist pled guilty to all counts. He agreed with the sentencing and admitted to everything. He was sentenced in January 2021. I'm kind of surprised all that happened with COVID because everything has been Put on the back burner and shut down and but apparently it happened he just maybe yeah. the fact that he just kind of was like i did it let's just get this over with he's currently yeah. serving 240 months in federal prison after which he will be released under supervision and ordered to pay four hundred and ninety seven thousand seven hundred and forty five dollars and seventy cents one count each for mail fraud and involuntary manslaughter yeah, and i'm sure there'll be civil there'll still be civil court lawsuits from the yeah the families that he impacted too yeah for sure I don't understand they're released under supervision. What are they going to do? <laughs> Surely someone wouldn't hire him after this, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I get, yeah, I don't think, I mean, he's, did he lose his medical license? It seems like he should. Uh, I know but, that when yeah, the think, investigation started, they did suspend his license. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they're drug and alcohol testing and making mm -hmm. sure that he's not going back into that pattern of behavior. But yeah, I think medicine is probably not going to be his career line much further. Right. I 
would have to agree. Well, that was our bad dog. Well, and what's story. 240 months? How long is that? <laughs> oh. How long is 240 months? 20 years? No, wait. Right? 12. No, 240 months. Is it really? Surely not. Why do we do it that I way? I think so. Hold on. <laughs> Just say 20 years. So he's coming out at, he's going to be, you know, 80. So. I didn't even put that together. I was just like 240 months. That's not very much. <laughs> I just kept going. Gosh, 20 years. Yeah, that's a lot. There's only 12 months in a year. So that's. A- <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Gosh, the thing is, though, when you take, there are people who l- deliberately kill people and serve less time, you know, and their, mm-hmm. ac- their intention was to take their life and they actually serve less time. Yeah. It's, it always uh, fascinates me, people who do things where it was more of an opportunistic type thing or just like a, they mm-hmm. just sort of made some bad choices and one thing led to another. And then without them even realizing it, they were responsible for someone dying. And then they can go to prison for so much longer that uh, we did a story a few weeks ago about a nurse who didn't want to get caught not doing her job. She was supposed to be doing auditing and paperwork and stuff in this doctor's office. And she didn't want to get found out that she was behind. And so she set the office on fire. She set a cl- uh, like all the paperwork <laughs> on fire in a closet, made sure it was burning and then left the building. And unfortunately, the building was not up to codes for fire safety. There, People died in that. It was horrible. Oh and did she intend to kill people? No, but she certainly didn't stop to think about the consequences of her actions of what could have happened. So, and I guess that's yeah. what. All for just, like a simple thing that if you just admit to not working, like that's mm-hmm. so simple, like, and now it escalated. So the moral of the story is find your ethical compass and check in with it a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you could kill people especially as healthcare professionals, like we, we have yeah. a lot on the line. So it's better to admit to whatever it is, to drinking, doing something a little bit wrong, not showing up, whatever it is, mm-hmm. than trying to hide it and, and really actually impacting people's lives. So Absolutely. If you've got people's lives in your hands, you've got to take it seriously. Unfortunately, I think that the healthcare system puts nurses and other healthcare workers in a situation where they can justify not doing everything exactly the way they're supposed to quote supposed to because it's not possible to do everything. It's, you know, they, they have too much work put, placed on their shoulders. We have to decide for ourselves what is important for the patient and our license period and then just focus on those things. And I think the biggest thing there is the nurse, you as a nurse is, are responsible for your license. The hospital's not responsible for it, board of nursing's not responsible for it, the people that employ you are not responsible for it you are responsible for your license and you have to own that and no one else is to blame for anything that happens but you and so you have to learn how to protect it and advocate for it and and those are all skills that you should be building out and it's yours to have so it's true it's true it's part of being a professional well i guess that was our bad doctor story and we can get into this good doctor story i promised you guys it was uh going to be an interesting one it's not a typical all sunshine and roses story it's it's a little different we're going to go back over 100 years ago but it's really fascinating i i was so fascinated by this woman this is the story of dr helene nabe it's spelled h e l e n e helene and her last name is k n a b e for you guys that want to look up information about her. She was a very accomplished physician. She overcame a tremendous amount of adversity and ended up moving to the United States from Germany 
in order to go to medical school because women were not allowed at the time to go to medical school in Germany. And really, uh, so um, this was actually taken from the Indiana State Library from the Indiana uh, History Blog on the Indiana Historical Bureau of the Indiana State Library. I don't think I said the word Indiana enough times, but that's where the story came from. And Go Hoosiers. <laughs> I know. My sister actually lives in Indianapolis, so it's a wonderful city. So she actually was a trailblazer in, in medical school and all that she accomplished. And But when she was growing up in Germany, she dreamed as a child of going to medical school, but everyone was like, it literally doesn't happen. You can't, women can't go to medical school. And I always find that fascinating because this, th- we talk a lot about people who, uh, in the good nurse story or the good doctor stories, we talk about people, a lot of times, either women or African-Americans or people who are just told that they're not allowed to do something like, you know, because you're this, you're not allowed to do that. You know, you're not one of the the people, the chosen people who are allowed in this group. And Yet you you can go back a hundred years and find a lot of them who just went. I don't hear what you're saying. I'm going to go do it anyway, and they literally did somehow. So she moved from Germany to the United States because she heard that oh, in the United States, a woman can go to medical school, and that's exactly what she did. And she graduated from medical school in 1904, and became one of two women that graduated from that school and threw herself wholeheartedly into her profession. She burned the candle at both ends and. She became lab curator, clinical professor, which she was not paid for, and was appointed deputy state health officer in 1905 for the Indiana State Board of Health and became the first woman to hold that office in Indiana. And part of her duties involved investigating suspected epidemics, such as typhoid and diphtheria, and then making recommendations to reverse unsanitary conditions. I feel like she would have been all over COVID. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she was all over rabies. She she was like she mm-hmm. like discovered ra- or proved the existence of rabies and yeah, I mean she would be she's like like pre-Fauci. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She was just amazing and she did so many things and then unfortunately just this horrible thing happened. So she we're kind of going to get, I wanted to just sort of highlight uh, some of the positive things about her before we kind of get into this part, because unfortunately this is what she's remembered for, which is why, you know, I wanted to kind of, you know, talk about all the amazing things that she did, but she had a a cousin by the name of Augusta. And apparently Augusta had this really weird dream. Did you read the story about the snake? It's so creepy. Uh, I saw the, like a black snake or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. The dream about a black snake coming in or something. Yeah. Yeah. So Augusta, her cousin, had this really weird dream in the middle of the night. And the dream was about this black snake that came in between these two women. And it was winding back and forth and circling overhead. And the snake had this weird, like, look on its face, you know, just kind of like a leer, just sort of what you, I guess, would expect from a snake, I guess. I don't know. And (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that weird, creepy looking. It's it's really creeped me out, this story. And so it's weaving in and out of the women and then winding in between and pulling them apart. So then Augusta was just so disturbed. I can't imagine waking up in the middle of the night and having this, but she felt like it was an apparition. And 
so she reached for her in the dream and then lost her grip. And then she sat up in bed, tried to, you know, couldn't catch her breath. She was so upset and she had to, she was like sweating and just like, oh my gosh, what a nightmare. And she felt like, okay, I'm going to reach out. She felt like it was what she said was penance for the fact that she hadn't accepted her cousin's offer to go to tea the day before. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, now that I, you know, turned her down for, to go to tea, now I'm having this awful dream. So she just told herself, okay, I'm going to go by her apartment and go, I'll take her to tea the next day and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that night, something really horrible happened to Dr. Nabe. And it's really, it's just kind of crazy. So someone went into Dr. Nabe's apartment in the middle of the night and brutally cut her throat from ear to ear. And the killer was skilled enough to cut her on one side first, miss her carotid artery and cut deep enough to cause her to choke on her own blood. And the second just nicked the carotid artery and cut into the spine. So that's a very specific type of cut, apparently. And so when the officials started following the case, they, at first, they were like, oh, well, maybe it was the African-American janitor that lives downstairs. Of course, that's going to be the first person, you know, that's going to pop into their minds. And then, oh, well, there's a Greek prince who was seen mailing a letter near her apartment. Maybe it's that person. Just so, you know, ridiculous things. Then they decided, you yeah, know like what? random. Right. Like anybody other than someone literally connected to her. Right. But then they, what they really landed on was amazing. The, the final decision of what really happened to her is that she committed suicide. Because at five foot six and 150 pounds, the Chief Martin Highland believed that she would, should have been strong enough to ward off any attack. So she must have taken her own life. She oh. was sleeping. What? <laughs> like, I, yeah, you, yeah, I can always just wake up in the middle of the night when someone's slitting my throat and stop them. Like that sounds totally reasonable. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, you should have. Uh, like it, the logic. No I don't. I, like, where's the logic? <laughs> they said this guy, and then the story they said like the investigator was like the Sherlock Holmes of the United States. Right. And like that's his conclusion. Like, where where are we at, Sherlock? I love Sherlock Holmes. I've read all of the books and I, I love to listen to them on audiobook on Audible. And I'm pretty sure that is not the conclusion he would have come to in this case. Right. So thankfully, though, the coroner, Dr. Charles Durham, determined that Dr. Navy was murdered and noted that she had defensive wounds on her arms. He was adamant that she could not have made both cuts. So she had two cuts to her throat. And basically what he's saying is, if she could have managed to make one of them, she wouldn't have been able to make the second one. Not only that, having the defensive wounds is kind of a telltale sign. Detective. Yeah. So yeah. I love that. The, I love like, that I can just talk picture, like everybody. this. This is why I love these shows because I can get so I can get so salty with these people because they're not here. I don't have to worry about it. I right. can say whatever I want. I'm not going to make anyone mad. <laughs> I can fall I very firmly on one side. So. He also noted several factors that he considered strongly presumptive of murder, including the position of the hands, which had been closed after death, the absence of plausible a, a plausible suicide weapon. So if you have a person who is lying in their bed and they've had their throat cut and they have, so they have uh, two cuts to their throat, ear to ear, 
and they're clearly dead. They bled out, but there is no murder weapon. I mean, there's no weapon that they would have used to commit suicide. What did they do? How? Yeah. It's like one of those riddles where it's like ice. Ice is mm-hmm. the answer. Like, right. is it melted? And I'm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. There was a, I'm like, a, yeah, a, there's so many holes in this investigative story. It was a, it was maybe a, that's where the story icicle. needs to go though. She's an yeah, icicle. it was an icicle. Maybe that's where the story needs to go, though. It's like maybe the investigator had something to do with it. I don't know. It seems like there's more to this than what's in this article. Yeah, there is. There, there's a little bit more to it. There was a doctor by the name of Dr. Craig who met Dr. Navy in 1905. They maintained a friendship together. He recommended her for the position as chair of hematology in 1909 at the Veterinary College. And then shortly before her death, he and Dr. Nabe seemed to be in the middle of an ongoing dispute. Dun, dun, dun. So yep. she went to the IVC to see about changing her lecture time with Dr. Craig so that she could attend her course at the normal college. And Dr. Craig became enraged when a colleague asked for his answer. And he, <laughs> he said, OF, tell her to go to hell. <laughs> well, Dr. Craig, <laughs> tell us how you really feel. He stormed out of the yeah. room. And the night before she died, Dr. Craig's housekeeper overheard them arguing, and she heard Dr. Nabe say, you can continue to practice, and so can I. So they were definitely arguing, and it was it was not pretty, the, the, what was going on between the two of them. Police had a letter in their possession in which Dr. Nabe told a friend she was getting married. Dr. Nabe confided to a friend she was getting married to a man with a, quote, ungovernable temper. So... At the time of her death, Dr. Nave, an accomplished seamstress and dressmaker, commissioned a costly dress indicative that she was getting married. And the th- so here's what's weird about that is it didn't, it's almost like that was kind of going on behind the scenes and undercover. Like, what would be the point of that? I don't know. But it did seem like there was something very odd going on. But the fact that she had this, quote, friendship with this other doctor and clearly was having some issues with him. And then this happens. Also, the cut that was made, the ear-to-ear cut, was called a sheep's cut. And I guess, I don't know, Dr. Craig must have been, he would have been familiar with that sort of that sort of thing. So basically, though, I mean, the prosecutors did kind of set their sights on him and they tried to go after him. And that's when she, her reputation really started getting raked over the coals. And she, the, because to defend him, they just made it sound like she was a horrible person and she was miserable because she was so stupid. She was masculine, you know, male dominated profession. And that she, because of that, she was miserable and she decided to kill herself. And so that was the defense. And apparently I'm not sure it worked, but the judge stepped in and took over and decided to end the trial. And so he was not found, he was found not guilty, but not because because the jury actually acquitted, because the judge instructed the jury to acquit. It's so yeah. weird. So weird. And the undertaker was involved in some way, like hiding evidence. And it, yeah, it just went down this weird, it could be yeah. a movie. It, it really could be a movie. It's so fascinating. And the thing that I really wanted to, to focus on, though, is the fact that for all that she accomplished in moving from Germany to the United States to overcome all that she did and become a a medical doctor and work under the circumstances and obviously had to work so much harder just to be able to accomplish what she did. And then she dies and this is what she's remembered for. So 
I just wanted to kind of highlight her and her accomplishments and talk about those things. And the fact that, I don't know, I feel like we're getting better in our country, at least about recognizing women and, and women's rights. And, but we still have a long way to go. And yeah. It's, and it's and, kind the, of and she had like the ultimate side gig stuff too, right? I mean, she was like, she had like three jobs. She mm-hmm. was pulling in a bunch of money and was sending it home to like her uncle or something that was, you know, yes. could not work for himself. And mm-hmm. you know, she's supporting her family. And then, you know, to have some pompous guy get mad and, mm-hmm. you know, murder somebody, it's just, it's, yeah. It's yeah, sad. they tried to make it seem as though she was not doing well financially, but she was. Like you said, she had a lot of side gigs going and she was working all the time and and she was sending her money to back to her family, which is, you know, just goes to show, you know, what kind of person she really was. Just, you know, just a wonderful, giving, charitable person. So it's kind of ironic for, you know, nursing is a female dominated profession. And I'm always trying to advocate for you know, men in nursing to get equality there and having the OBGYN on a few weeks ago, there are very few men in nursing for, you know, when it comes to OB, which is understandable. I would say there's probably not a lot of men who would want to do that. You know, it's just, you're going to, all of your patients are going to be women. And just, I could imagine it just being uncomfortable. So there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, I know that the profession of nursing will be elevated as more men get into the profession and it's accepted. You know, it's not, you're not handmaidens to the doctors. It's not that, that old mindset, you know, we got to move out of that and move into nursing being a profession and nursing is a science so that was another soapbox I got on a few weeks ago because I saw an article <laughs> was talking about sci- nursing and how nursing is not a science. It's not one of the STEM. It's not a STEM career. Don't even get me started because I want my money back yeah. from all of those science classes I had to take just to get into nursing yeah, school. Yeah. <laughs> Organic chemistry didn't learn itself. So Microbiology. <laughs> Microbiology. Yeah. It's Anatomy, basically all science. It's all science. It's so ridiculous. I couldn't believe it. You know, our federal government doesn't recognize it as a STEM career because colleges of nursing would be getting money from from our federal government if it did. So Mm -hmm. there you go. Can't have that. (sighs) Well, you know, there's another thing for us to get. There's so many things in there that we can unpack. Yeah, we could. We should have. We should have one of those where we talk about why the AMA came out against the physician assistants changing their name and nurse practitioner license and all kinds of like. We could go down a big rabbit hole there. I know. There's a lot to talk about. And that's really what our podcast is about. It's about kind of using storytelling to talk about these things. I love to to talk about all of these different things that I see, these injustices that I see in the profession of nursing. And I want to to make changes. And I, I feel like storytelling is, storytelling is my favorite way of getting across a point. So that's what this mm-hmm. podcast is all about, is to try to get the message out there. So hopefully we're doing that. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming back on the show and spending some time with us and helping tell the stories. I appreciate it. Yeah, this, I always enjoy the conversation, and it always leads back. It keeps me thinking about like how do we how do we use this to catalyze change within our profession and and just rethink about our work. And yeah, I think these two stories really did that. And yeah, always like always like going down the rabbit holes too because there's so so many places we could go and address the the brokenness of healthcare. Absolutely. 
Well, you guys know that if you want, you can reach out to me. You do it all the time, don't you? At Tina at GoodNurseFatNurse.com. I love to hear from you. I really do. Send me your stories. I like to hear. I love it when you guys send me stories about things that you know that went on in your hometown. Sometimes I can't find those things on the Internet. They're so obscure. And also you can find us on Instagram uh, at GoodNurseBadNurse and Twitter and Facebook at GMBN Podcast. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, please be a good nurse.